Good morning. No, this is not a prop. Yes, I did hurt my eye. No, I cannot see if you're throwing something at me from this side of the room. Thankful Dan Durenberger is in here. I know there'd be paper airplanes that's coming all the sermon. I had a little minuscule piece of drywall dust or glass and light, especially these lights, just feel like searing pain on my right eye. So I'm going this way. If it was a prop, I wouldn't be wearing the glasses because the glasses make me really cool. I am Pastor Scott. Welcome to E3 if you're brand new. I normally don't wear an eye patch. This is a one-week thing. I am fine. Thank God for eye doctors who knew what they were doing and a little lucky, a little lucky too. Um, long story for you, but that's another sermon. Right now we're going into, okay, let's, let's talk about the eye patch a little bit. Let's do, let's do pirate ABCs, okay? What's a pirate's favorite letter? But what letter do they long for? The C, the C, the C. And what letter can they only say two times in a row? Seriously, you're going to go there? Seriously, you're going to say I, I right now? All right, here we go. Now that that's over and out of the way, thanks, Matt, for the cool guy with the eye patch. Who'd you pick? Who'd you pick? I told him, there he is. There he is. Talking through the Psalm series. <laughs> the Psalm series. We've gone through several weeks of talking through the Psalm series, uh, looking all the way to the beginning. We talked about uh, lament psalms and psalms of praise. Last week, thankful for Sam for doing psalms as history. Today, we're talking about imprecatory psalms, which how many of you know what imprecatory psalms are? Yeah. I didn't either when I first got this. Grateful for Pastor Mike for putting this in there, kind of sliding in at the last minute. We'll get into penitential psalms and the messianic psalms in the next two weeks as this series wraps up. But imprecatory psalms are psalms that are very just just hard. Uh, Ginger did a wonderful job reading the sermon or the, the sorry the message, the Bible. That's what it's called, the Bible. Just moments ago, a little disoriented right now. The Bible just moments ago, and thankful that we're getting into this. I'm thankful for Pastor Mike for sliding this in there because it is a type of psalm that we just, as Americans, kind of say like, ooh, this one makes me feel weird, so I'm just going to turn the page to Psalm 23. To define and understand what imprecatory psalms are, I want to give you a connection question to find and talk with your neighbor about, and it's a little bit weird. You can take it the playful route, or you can take it the very serious route online. Please chat in. We'd love to hear your chats of what you think about this as well. Find somebody you've not met before. So find somebody you know really well, and ask them this question, and then answer it. Take a minute. Ready, set, what keeps you up at night? I heard some fun ones, okay? I heard some funny ones. I heard some people laughing, so I'm glad it wasn't completely serious. It may be, you know, something fun, like sports keep me up at night, although some of you slept pretty sound last night, I know. Yeah, (laughs) like a baby. Oh, man, some of you did not. Some of you did not, like me. Some of you may have said an ironic thing like caffeine or a child, and some of you may have shared something a little more near to your heart, like climate change, disease, ailments, iniquities. Many share per week what are the things keeping them up at night with me, and I'm privileged to walk alongside those people. Just this past week and a half, the health of a loved one, the country of Haiti, the anxiety of a loss of a job, 
the hopelessness of a marriage or parenting, relatives who are far away and needing support, and how to make ends meet financially are things that I met one-on-one with people in our very room. And each one of these, even eye patches, on a Sunday morning can be cause for lifting up a prayer of song of deliverance to God. And some in the above list are items that cannot be controlled by one person to one level or another and by the person facing them. No, they need justice. There's another level of items that are outside the control of those facing injustice to the great extent that the injustice is literally unholy. It's sinful. Imprecatory psalms call upon God, the righteous judge, to act upon the author for justice for what's keeping them up at night that needs holy remedy, a righteous justice. And these imprecatory psalms all have the theme to act soon. Don't wait, don't delay God, act right now. The psalm that we had read is imprecatory. It is so unique to the Hebrew language and the Bible in general, I really would like two sermons to get into it, but then we cut into Christmas, so we're not going to do that. There are several Hebrew words and poetical uses that it could take two sermons to get into and get in the depths of this. For real, it is so long that I'm just going to jump in right now and show you what I'm talking about, and then quickly through Psalm 7, and then highlight several points I think that are very valid and relevant to every person in this room, regardless of where you stand in any sort of your world view, as we get into 2022. Got it? That was unenthusiastic. Church, got it? There we go. Psalm 7. Injustice. A Shagayan of David, which he's saying to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjaminite. In some of your Bibles, this will be verse 1. In some of your Bibles, this is a heading that goes above the psalm. Psalms are different because some of them treat the headings as an actual verse, as a part of the psalm. Some of the psalms have headings above that, telling you who the author is and the subject. In this one, I believe it actually fits very well in as verse 1 of the psalm, though we won't use it that way, per se, during the sermon today. It is unclear who the adversaries are that David writes about. We don't know who he's referring to. Is David the author even? There's some evidence that this might have been a person who wrote under David's name in his court, but I'm not here to debate that here, again, unless you want it to be two or three sermons long. The Shagayan, we have no idea what that word truly means. There is another use of this Old Testament word, this Hebrew word, that comes from Habakkuk 3.1, which uses the term meditation. However, when you read this psalm, it is not a meditation. It is an accusation. It is a call for justice. We don't know who Cush the Benjaminite is, even. We know that Saul, David's king before him, who was chasing David literally around the country, trying to kill him, Saul was a Benjaminite. So it could be that it's some sort of relationship. It could be a story that just isn't in our Bible. We have no idea. But the point of it is that the author makes it very clear that justice needs to happen and starts right out of the gates with that. Verse either one or two. Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me or they will tear me apart like a, what is it, church? And rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. There's a closest relationship with this author to God, with David. We see that in 1A, this author in being David uses this phrase, Lord my God, I take refuge in you, over and over and over in several different psalms as the opening. So you start out the psalm, you say, I don't know what it's going to be yet. This is the opening line, the dear God. In 1B, it's an expression of trust in lament. So not to give away the following content to God. And he uses the idea of a lion, 
which is very perfect for David because he was a shepherd. Likely, as a shepherd in this day and age, you would fight off at least one lion in your tenure as shepherd. Maybe not literally fighting a lion, but at least throwing rocks at it with that sling. And we see that this idea of being hounded, of being under attack, is used literally by the author, by David, to say that I need help, I need justice. Now, as we get into the next verses, I want to give a little quick side note about moral relevance and divine judgment. This idea that I have a relevance in my morality that goes in comparison to the people around me. I may say that I am a good person. I have pastor in front of my title, so I, you know, morally, I'm just a step ahead of everybody else, right? But then there's this idea that the only true person who can judge us morally is someone who stands outside of all of humanity. You don't know the things that are attacking me in my brain day in and day out. How could you? I love the movies where you get to switch places with another person, you live their life as them, because it's so illuminating for the person saying, I have no idea what you or you or you or you or you or you are going through. But gosh, if I did, I might not hold up just even nearly how well you've held up. And you know what? The same applies for me. It's interesting that we feel that there's this relevance, that somehow there's an ambiguity so I don't have to worry about morality, or that I have to compare myself constantly to another person to find either a superiority or an inferiority. With that in mind, look at verse 3, 4, and 5. This is, this is what I want to get into the meat of it. 3, 4, and 5. Lord my God, if I have done this and there's guilt on my hands, if I have replayed my ally with evil or without cause have robbed my foe, then let my enemy, what is it? And let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. He uses these if statements. as a computer programmer called Boolean. If the person presses X, then do this. If the person presses Y, then do this. Basics of computer programming. If I've done this, then do this. If I've done the guilt on my hands, repaid ally with evil, rob my foe. If I've done this in general, we don't know what this is. It's this famous interaction that lines up almost perfectly with a story that goes back into David's lifetime. There's this time where Saul is pursuing David, and if you know of these stories in the Old Testament, it's like an old-fashioned Bugs Bunny and Coyote. Not Bugs Bunny and Coyote. Coyote and Roadrunner. Coyote and Roadrunner. Does a coyote chase Bugs Bunny? He does, right? No no one? Okay, okay. The coyote always is chasing someone, and it's usually the Roadrunner. It's an old-fashioned coyote and Roadrunner, if you remember the the old cartoons. And this idea that David is running away from Saul, and it's always like the minute he's going to get captured, something amazing happens. God opens the door. But there's several times where it's actually really funny. And there's this one time where David's hiding in a cave. Saul's right at the door frame of this cave and says, hey, guys, time out. This is amazing. Hang on for this. I got to go relieve myself in a cave. Saul pooped too, folks. He goes inside the cave. He poops. And while he's in there, David's right behind him. How bizarre, right? And David can actually kill Saul while Saul is, I mean, it just happens, okay? Everybody does it. And what happens is that David just cuts off a little bit of his cloak to show how close he was with a weapon. And as Saul leaves, he comes out of the cave saying, hey, Saul, look, 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 nah, 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 nah. See what I could have done and what you're accusing me of? 
see what you could have seen happen, but, but I didn't do it. I'm innocent. You're the one, moral relevance, who's trying to attack me, and I'm the one running away from you. We see over and over and over this happen in these passages from David to Saul's transition. And here in verse 3, 4, and 5, the Hebrew lines up so well with that ancient story that it has to make the ancient reader remember it as they're reading out this psalm, saying there's a judgment at play and a moral relevance and a divine judgment that's at play here in this psalm. Some commentators believe that David writes this section with a measure of sarcasm. I don't see it. And I love sarcasm. Chandler Bing and I, we're just one and one. I'm given different decades of relevance. Bugs Bunny is the 80s, 70s. Chandler Bing, 90s, okay? Here's, here's the thing. Instead, I see this as 100% gut-wrenching honesty. There's nothing to indicate sarcasm. Indeed, this text is brutal and lies with a man on the run for his life with no other options but to appeal and say, if I've done this, make me sleep in the dust. The seriousness is on full display with this verse, make me sleep in the dust. Another way to read it is if he's acted dishonorably, let him lie among the dead souls. Ooh, powerful words there. Return to the earth in body and soul. Make my life dust and my soul dust if I've done anything dishonorably. And then we have this amazing word that I've come back over and over to in the psalm series called Selah. Now, Selah is a word that we don't understand the musical definition. We don't understand what the author is saying. But it's like looking at these notes and saying, well, I don't understand what it means, so I'm just going to skip over it. I'm going to still read it, but I'm just going to skip over it. And I think if we see that this is David or whoever the author is just pouring out their soul and then they say, Selah, I believe this person is waiting for God to speak back. So you have to take a pause and listen for the Lord to sing back a judgment on the person singing it. But now the music takes a different turn. This is where the singer starts just belting out. I mean, this is the climax of the song. There he is. Arise, rise up, awake. You feel this music swelling even though we don't know the ancient tune. Verse six, arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage, my enemies. Awake, my God, decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. The Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O most high. See, God in David's world and in most of human history sits above humanity as this everlasting judge sitting on this throne. David and the Israelites believed that God would rule over the individual along with every single nation. When placing God as a judge in God's timing and in God's ways, this is an effective and a powerful psalm to address what keeps you up at night. But we live in 2022. This doesn't apply to us necessarily as equal footing as it did to your ancient reader. What I want to give is an idea of this justice quadrilateral. That as I'm standing on this square, there are four points that center around this idea of justice, true justice in the middle. There's some of us who believe that there's this divine judge named God, and God has somehow equipped me as God's people to therefore judge every single person because God has told me what is right and wrong. You ever come across those people before? Yeah, it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous footing. 
that this divine judge, as God has judged, God has equipped me to be the righteous judge of all people. And so what I say is God actually literally speaking, which is extremely dangerous. Unless it actually is God literally speaking, then we should listen to that person, right? But who's to say? There's the other corner here where God is judge, but no one is righteous. All of us are sinful. God would never use a person. So because God is judge and God can't speak through any single person because everyone is flawed, then there is no justice at all, even though God's this extremely passive and kind of kid with an ant farm kind of judge. One extreme, another extreme. This is pulling on the other side of the square where we see that as people as judges, and there are people who have good morals and who do function as more or less good judges. However, it's a self-righteousness. It's a self-righteousness that fuels every single one of their decisions. And so they say, I know better than you, and so you have to pay this fee, or you have to do this, or you have to do that. We all know people like that as well, right? Lastly, is this corner where we say that no one is righteous and man is by itself, there is no God. And this vacuum of justice allows anybody to do whatever they really want. You ever hear that in today's 2022? It's a dangerous place that many of our middle schoolers and high schoolers are leaving. And yet every single one of these points pulls at this idea of what true, actual justice is. More on that in a moment. We see that in verses 9 through 13, the author of this imprecatory psalm asks for true justice. Hear up. Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God who probes minds and hearts. Not just what I'm thinking, coming out the emotional state of who I am at my core. Verse 10, my shield is my God most high, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, the person who's not just, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He's prepared with his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. In this phrase, we see this, this, this concept of musicality where the author says A, B, C, and then rephrases it C, B, A. He uses these phrases from verses 9 all the way through 13. And it's beautiful. If you're listening to this ancient song, you'd hear it. We can't hear it today. Darn. But you'd hear this, this beautiful symmetry of this phrase that the writer writes in ancient Hebrew. But from here, David is now concerned about not about the cessation of evil, not about what's in person, but what causes evil itself. Verse 14, whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. Usually evil is shown to be like a lion. You know the verse. Or an army or other ominous things. But here David evokes a different type of imagery that evil is shown as being pregnant. It starts unseen and grows inside a person until they conceive trouble and disillusionment and almost always ends with violence. 
Then David ends it very surprisingly, verse 17. I will give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness. I will sing praises to the name of the Lord most high. David closes with a beautiful phrase proclaiming the goodness of God, the everlasting righteous judge. See, what David does is he centers what righteousness and what justice is in the center of the quadrilateral. All the while, this person is living in a world that has all four of these extremes, even though they may seem different without Facebook in the ancient world. That was a joke. Twitter. Whatever else media you follow, I don't care. See, I, I, I know, I get it. I get an hour, I don't even get an hour. I get 27 minutes on a Sunday to talk to you about the Bible. You know how much attention either your CNN or your Fox News gets to your day? Ooh, does that? You know how much time I spend on this versus studying my scripture? I, I'll be honest. I spend probably more time on this. Now I have the Bible app, so maybe it does equal out. But, but this idea of this ancient justice that God is just, God is the righteous judge is being pulled on this unjust quadrilateral in every single way. So I want to make two large and two small-scale observations, two large in terms of imprecatory psalms as a whole, and then two on this very special Psalm 7. Imprecatory psalms are not written out of indignantness or violence, number one. When studying the imprecatory psalms, it's important to note that these psalms were not written to, for, for personal vengeance. Now, he names a guy, Cush. However, we see that the author David wants God to bring justice, not for God to give him supernatural strength to go punch Cush in the eye. I was expecting a little giggle because I only have one eye. Okay. <laughs> I'm making it uncomfortable. I know. I'm yin and yang. Okay. But this is important because these God's people have been beaten up over and over and over. The Hittites, Amorites, Philistines, Babylonians. Whew. That's on Psalm 137, another one of these kinds of psalms. And these lyrics will help them in the future with the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and even Rome itself. Don't think that Jesus and Jesus' contemporaries weren't comforted by Psalm 7 as they did their ministry. But Jesus doesn't call for violence. And I don't believe this psalm does either. This psalm asks for justice, the truest form of justice. And for God, if God chooses to use a holy violence that only weak, he can understand. Number two, imprecatory psalms are immediate and patient ask for full and systemic justice. The psalms are written in this genre and have the benefit of generational vantage point that takes multiple generations to occur. Let me put it this way. 400 years, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. It's taken me less than two days to have this be an annoyance. Two days, 400 years. There's a big time difference. But a holy justice brings reconciliation to all parties. To all parties. I love, and if you want some homework from this, read Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. It is perfect, imprecatory letter written in the 1900s. In a fashion and mode that instructs a reader to do without physical violence, but to be called to nonviolent peaceful protest. It says that people have a moral responsibility to break unjust laws and to take direct action rather than waiting patient, potentially forever 
for justice to come through the courts. He writes, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Woo. Woo. Full justice means that the people who have been under oppression for generation to generation to generation deserve full justice. And not for the extremes of the quadrilateral to pull them one way or the other, but instead to look for what that looks from a holy perspective that their humanity is restored in the fullness of who they are. Point three. The psalm in particular, Psalm 7, shows that no one is above God's justice. David is both humble-oriented and continually reoriented by God's justice. He says, try me, God, right here at the center. Don't let me stick over here or back over here. I have no depth perception. I have not fallen yet, yay. He says, try me, God. See if there's anything in my mind or heart that's not worthy, that's not right in, in your eyes. Please, see what sin and what greed and what passions are hidden. They're causing me not to be judged by your justice. I was blessed real quickly, real quick story. Blessed last week to go to Chicago with Pastor Mike for a wonderful conference on uh, reconstructing evangelicalism. It was an amazing time where we had this continuing, we had amazing speakers. And what happened was, is that over the past several years, the idea of what an evangelical is has been so misconstrued and politicized, to be totally honest, that the people in the conference who are awesome, men and women who love Jesus, they looked and they said, we have to sit and let God redefine who we are and even maybe relabel this term evangelical to something completely different. Quick story. This idea of what happened in Chicago should happen to us all daily to reorient my scale of justice that I'm somehow right and I'm somehow right and my husband or my wife is always wrong, is always wrong. Whoo, did I hit a nerve there? Where does God see each of you? Point four, this psalm beautifully calls out evil. It's not pleasurable, but the idea of evil being birthed in some sort of pregnancy is one that just should make us feel disgusting inside. While we agree that as individuals on what evils are, it is easy to identify evils as they even lay pregnant. Sometimes for generous brooding, and sometimes they show themselves by the perpetrator falling in their own dug hole. Jesus warns in Mark about having a heart from which evil things come from. He talks about immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance. James, who wrote letter James, speaks of a desire of a sin-death cycle several times in his epistle. That this idea of the desire breeds forth to sin, breeds forth to death, comes over and over and over in a person's life. But here I want to point out that culturally in 2022, we have to call out the evils that pervade whether or not we are contributors, whether or not we are found to be attacked, or whether we're somewhere in between. Things like racism, things like greed, hoarding, 
valuing profit over people. Sexism, a disregard for the marginalized, laziness, and lies and deceit. So now I circle back to that initial question. What keeps you up at night? I'm asking, do you need an imprecatory psalm in your spiritual vocabulary? Do you need justice from a person, an organization? Do you even need maybe justice from the church? Has a big C church harmed you in some way in your life, in your testimony? Do you have a valid injustice that needs reconciliation? Some of us need to be willing to offer that to those in the room. And some naming both. It's easy to call it evil from a country away, but it's hard when it hits home. And to close the service, I want you to do something that is unique not only for E3, but for all Christians. In this day and age, more and more people go to church to hear what they want to hear versus what they need to hear. I want to say that again. People go to church these days to go to what they want to hear versus what they need to hear. And today, more than ever, we must have a David-like heart to ask the psalmist for God to reveal what is sinful and evil in my heart and for me to untie myself from in systemic injustices, for renewal and revival to spring up in my heart and for Jesus to literally flow out of me. There are a few here who may be more than a few who need to hear and unite with their brothers and sisters saying we need to see a change. Change in our city, change in our country, change even in the world a reorientation of justice itself in the world. And you need to pray this prayer of imprecatory psalm. We're gonna put words on the screen in a moment. I wanna read on your behalf. And if this phrase hits home, if the wording is true, I'd invite you to stand during that phrase. We're gonna reread this Psalm 7. Pastor Lori and the worship team are gonna teach you a response song that goes in between each one of these stanzas that we'll sing as one church body, especially if you're online, sing it together at home. We do not judge, and we ask that the Spirit would come in and breathe to groups of people who need to stand and groups of people who feel called just to stay seated during this entire psalm. Some may just stand the entire time. Some may not stand at all. We do not judge, but we ask for the Spirit to come inside this room to renew and challenge us where our bodies themselves cannot help to stand, even outside our own power. At the end of each stanza, again, Pastor Lori and the worship team will lead us in a responsive music phrase that they'll teach you in one moment. This phrase serves as our own Selah as we bring life to these words. So with that, let us come to our gathering with a posture of humility, an open heart, and a willing spirit.